Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. I'm so excited about this interview that I think I overwhelmed Sarah Dusick, my guest today. Um, here's the thing. What Sarah created that I've watched from a distance is this company called Under Canvas, and they put up these gorgeous, beautiful tents near national parks that let you be part of nature, but at the same time, if you're like me and you love nature, but you're also a little bit afraid of it, they give you some distance from it, meaning you don't have to go and dig a hole before going to the bathroom. They have full flushing toilets. You don't have to go for days without showering. They have real showers with warm water and, and that are comfortable. You get all those amenities, but at the same time, you're not in a hotel room that's adjacent to, I don't know, a parking lot and somewhere down the road from the national uh, national park. You're out in nature. And to me, that is beautiful for a couple of reasons. The, the part of me that loves nature loves that I could be there and feel connected to nature and, and disconnected from my everyday life. The part of me that loves business thinks, what a, an amazing model. She doesn't have to put up hotel rooms. She puts up these tents, and she could buy land, which is a little bit away from national parks, so it's not as expensive as it would be if it was. I like that you're nodding as I'm saying this, Sarah, because when I get into co the commerce of beauty, people sometimes feel turned off. But I like that you marry the two of them with uh, Under Canvas, and you sold the business. And today you are running Enigma Ventures, which is a venture firm that invests in women in Africa. I invited her here to talk about how she built this business, and I could do it thanks to two phenomenal uh, companies. The first, if you need a developer, go to Lemon, lemon.io slash Mixergy. And the second, if you're at all curious about how to set up a decentralized autonomous organization, I want you to know I'm creating a podcast with Origami that you should listen and see how these token-based communities, not always token-based, can work. Anyway, go to joinorigami.com slash blog to see that podcast. First, Sarah, good to have you here. Thank you so much. Really great to be here. Excited to be here. Sarah, I read this old Forbes article with you where you said that the business could do $100 million a year and that it could be worth $500 million. You sold it. How close to those goals did you get? Where, what was the number? Pretty darn close. <laughs> <laughs> really? We sold, we sold in 2018 for over $100 million in 2018. And the company's wow. worth a lot more than that today. They have grown it since you. because, and, and also, frankly, the whole idea of camping and glamping is so big that you have the founder of Airbnb saying, please put this type of thing on our platform, right? Correct. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean... We were fortunate enough to have this idea um, a decade ago, uh, more than a decade ago. And um, at the time, the glamping industry did not exist. The whole idea of ecotourism was not very well developed. Um, the idea of staying in a tent that was a hotel not happening in the US. We were very fortunate to be the front runners of this idea. Um, and to be helping people think about bridging the divide between experiencing the outdoors, but yet doing it in uh, relative comfort and ease. So the whole Your idea story... was that we would be a bridge. We could be a bridge between the outdoors and, you know, the average, the average person. The first place that you located was where? Uh, we opened our first national park camp in Yellowstone in Montana. And this was a lease to own deal. Am I right about that? 
It was, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and at the time, we had no idea whatsoever that anyone would want to pay any kind of money for sleeping in a tent. Because <laughs> it was brand new, right? I mean, people had their own tents and would go camping. Right. Um, but the idea of charging money for people to sleep in a tent that you've put up for them was a completely, you know, crazy idea at the time. And so how did you know that this was a good idea? Where did it come from? I didn't. <laughs> so why do um, it? Other than the fact what happened and why Under Canvas came into being was I fell in love with Africa 20 odd years ago um, and I came to work in Africa um, as an NGO worker in my early 20s. I fell in love with the continent. I fell in love with the safari experience because like you, I, I am not a crazy, you know, adventurous I am an outdoorsy person, but I don't consider myself brave in the outdoors. I need some, I need some support around me. Um, and um, the safari experience in Africa does just that. It allows you to be out on in amazing, incredible places, but yet you are so well taken care of. And you've got an amazing, comfortable bed and beautiful furnishings and incredible showers and baths. And, you know, it's just luxury. It was amazing. And um, I, I was lucky enough to marry an amazing Montanan man. And when I arrived in Montana with him, um, I, I could see the connection between Africa and Montana and big wide open spaces and amazing wildlife and big skies and sunsets and all the rest of it. And he, he's a great outdoors guy and I was not. And so the idea of trying to build our own bridge for ourselves was where we started. And then this idea of, gosh, we could recreate the safari experience in Montana and see if anyone would like it. So that's where the idea came from. Wife and I did that. And by the way, you've got something that's putting alerts up in the background with that ding. If you oh. can find a way to turn it off or go on Do Not Disturb, I think it would help. The, my wife and I did one of these African safaris, and I went into it thinking, this is going to be a curated, overly manicured experience. It is not. I mean, they really yes. want the land to be preserved, the animals to live as they are with just human protection. And they'll take you on a Jeep for a drive around. And then when you're done driving around, you go into what is kind of a glamping tent because that's what they set up over there. And it's it's a beautiful experience. And so you said, I want to bring that to the world outside of South Africa. Was the first iteration of this called Sage Safaris, like that's an right. upscale yes. safari style bird hunting experience? Yeah, that's right. That was that was the first iteration of Under Canvas. Um, and so we started with four tents on my um, my husband's family's farm and ranch. Um, and we started with this concept of could we create the recreate this luxurious idea of being out on the prairie in Montana? And what we discovered was that people loved our loved our tents. People absolutely fell in love with this idea of staying in these beautiful tents. Can you describe um, that, please? What well, they the didn't fall in love with coming to stay on the prairie in Montana. Oh, they did not? Why not? <laughs> oh, it's too remote. It was too far. I mean, really serious, hardcore middle of nowhere. Um, okay. Beautiful. Um, but that that business, as much as we loved it, um, was just the precursor to doing something else with with tents. So 
the tent that he set up, he, from what I understand, designed the early tents himself, right? Yeah, all of our all of under canvas tents were Always. were designed by my husband. Yes, that's right. You know what, Sarah? I've tried to buy. I've got five acres, not not nearly as much as your husband's family has. I have five acres here in Austin. There's a spot that's just completely secluded and is beautiful that I would like to go and set up. I thought about getting a tent as beautiful as yours. All I could find are yurts. And yurt is a mm-hmm. whole other type of experience. It doesn't have the it's same totally luxury different. that you're talking about. Yeah. What did he? How did he design the first ones? What did they look like? How did they work? Um, so we always called them safari tents. So they're, they're effectively wall tents. Um, um, but, you know, you put a deck under them. Um, they have, you put some beautiful furniture in them. They have, our tents all have an ensuite bathroom Mm -hmm. in them. So you've got your bathroom and your bedroom. But he built his own bathroom into the first four tents that you set up? He did? Yes. Yes. How? Yes. (laughs) He's just that clever. What can I say? (laughs) But it wasn't one of these like, uh, bucket type of toilets. It was a flushing toilet? No, no flushing toilet. Um, full, full, full shower, everything, the whole nine yards. Wow. We, okay. So he set this up. You had people come in how, from where? We, we did what everybody does and you post and you put things online and you see what happens. Um, and you start to see what interest you get from, from people who are visiting your site. And From where? Where did you where did you get people to come to your site? Did you buy Google ads? Did you? Did, I don't think that Instagram was as effective. We did very little then. advertising. We did very little advertising. Under Canvas still does very little advertising. Um, we effectively levered our own Facebook page and built a website um, and started um, getting people talking about us. That was that was my strategy. Could we get people to talk about the tents and could we get people to talk about the experience and uh, and fall in love with it as much as we did. Okay. And so you saw they didn't really like the Montana part. They liked living in the tents. You seemed to enjoy hosting. You then went and you rented space. How much space did you rent for the next the Very next Very little. We rented about 10 acres initially, okay. so very little. Um and eventually bought the ranch that we um, that we rented land on originally, um, but over a period of time. So that was quite an exciting day when that happened. And this time, when you rented space away from Montana, you put the tents up, what was nearby and what was the experience like on your property? So we rent, we, we were still in Montana, but we just moved our tiny tiny operations and and created a larger operation down in west yellowstone in montana um and we created you know there's a there's a rest there was a restaurant there was a communal tent there was fire pits for people to sit outside of beautiful flowing river you know the river literally running through it um beautiful mountain vistas so totally spectacular property and so were people coming because they wanted to go for hikes or just spend time on your property? I think people were coming to stay with us because they were visiting the parks. And, and okay. you know, largely still today, the, the parks are the major attraction. And we provide, you know, an enhanced experience of, of visiting a national park or, or a monument. How much money did it cost you to get that first set up? 
Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I read that you borrowed forty thousand dollars from friends and family, and that's where that's how you got that's started. How we, that's how we started. Yeah, that that we we that was that was the initial capital that we put into Under Canvas and got going. So that was that was all we had. So we had tried to start another business in the UK before we we started, you know, a Sage Safaris effectively. And um, the great financial crash rolled around in 2007 and 2008, completely wiped us out. We lost pretty much everything we had. So we had one child at that point in time, her six-month-old baby, and no jobs and no income. And we'd lost everything in our previous business. And my husband, the man that he amazing man that he is, said, let's go start again. <laughs> and let's go to Montana and see what we can figure out. Um, and that was what we did. And we borrowed $40,000 to create the Sage Safari Safari experience. Um, and we got going again. And we lived off food stamps and, uh, I mean, air. I mean, literally. <laughs> Sarah, you were on food stamps as you were building... Yes. As, as yes. you were building Sage Safari, which became under canvas. Yes, we had absolutely zero, nada, nothing. I mean, I, and I remember going to try and claim uh, free child health care for my, my, my six-month-old mm -hmm. and being told that I didn't qualify because my in-laws had given us a car. And I remember thinking, wow. how poor do you have to be? <laughs> Because wow. I'm feeling at the bottom of the pile right now, and this is our situation feels pretty pretty tenuous, and I'm not qualifying for free child health care, and uh, it was it was a scary time. It was a really really scary difficult time, and and so when I meet entrepreneurs today, uh, as you said, I I run a venture firm, so we're focused on investing in in female entrepreneurs. You know, I I can relate to the horrible terrible difficult times it is when you start filming from scratch and you give up your day job and um you've you know you've, you're trying to make money and you're not making money and the it's hard it's really 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 hard i wonder why why you continued why didn't you say look we're going to go and get jobs we're going to go and and figure things out and that then come what back everyone said we should do Everyone said to us, including our families, please, <laughs> please. please just go get jobs. <laughs> and you didn't because? Um, we didn't because um, I think we were thinking we're trying to build a better life for ourselves. And we're trying to build the life that we want. We're trying to live true to our values, true to who we believe we are. And we're we're trying to do something that's not been done before. And when you have something that like burns a hole in you, there is nothing you can do but do it, right? Whatever it costs you, however hard it is, when something's in you, you just got to try and go and make that happen. And that well, is why we did not go and get jobs. 
What was that that was in you? So I'm looking at your career development. If I look at LinkedIn, it's just showing two different positions. It was under Canvas and now Enigma Ventures. But in my research, I saw that you were relief workers. I think for eight years, Sarah, you were a relief worker before you got burned out on it. Then you created the, this property development company, which had to lay off all 10 people back when the crash happened in 2008. And then Sage yep. Safaris. What What's the through line? What's the thing that made you say, I am Sarah and I'm not adjusting it by taking a job, by giving up on my 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 beliefs? What's the thing that you believed in that strongly? I think at the core of my being, I'm a pioneer. And both my husband and I are actually, and we love going where no one has gone before. Um, and he's 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 a much stronger inventor than I am, the, the creator than I am. But I think just this sense of um, both passionate about travel, both, both passionate about making a difference and feeling like we're contributing uh, to making the world better, um, and feeling like um, we were on a mission, on a mission um, and driven to do something not done before and driven to, to feel like we were contributing um, towards building our world. And when you came up with Sage Safaris, did you two sit down and say, okay, what's our next idea? Property development didn't work out. What do we see? And then throw up a few ideas. And this was, you did. What are some of the ideas that you threw up that you decided we're not going to pursue? I think that was the only idea we really came up with, to be honest. <laughs> but it was through an attempt to come up with good ideas. It was sitting down and saying, what do we start? What's the next big idea? And then this came back to you. Yeah. And I, okay. I think I think the, the nebulous of the idea was also thinking about, all right, how do we earn a living for ourselves? What does that look like? Um, how do we start? How do we start small and try and make something happen? And I and, you know, Often entrepreneurs are always thinking about making something big happen, yeah, uh, which is great. You have to think big, um, but I think we often sometimes also forget that we've got to start small to make something big happen. There's no making something big without starting small, um, and that was really the nebulous of just let's get going and see what happens. All right, I want to tell you about my first sponsor, um, Sarah. Do you know much about DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations? I do not. It's okay. You do not. Okay. Here's how they work. They're basically these organizations where the people who are part of the community own it and through tokens often uh, get to make decisions. They vote and they decide and they, and they carry out. I'm super curious about this. I launched a new podcast to help me understand this. It's through Origami and, and Origami creates these DAOs. And I just want to tell you, Sarah, about one of the people that I interviewed. It's this guy who was working at Bankless, which is a publishing company. They were doing well, about a million dollars a year. Everything was good as they were writing about crypto because crypto uh, was growing. And then they said, let's try a DAO. And what the DAO initially started to do was also contribute uh, to this crypto movement by writing about it. They created tokens. They created this community. The people who had tokens got to vote. And of course, they voted at first on creating more content sites, and that worked out well. Then they said, hey, you know what? I know we were empowered to just create content sites, and we're doing them. Why don't we also vote to see if there's any any interest in creating a consulting company? So this DAO created a consulting company to help companies go into crypto. And then they voted on doing this and that, and they just kept growing and growing. And we're talking about in about a year, 
bankless DAO, the DAO that was owned by the community of readers and listeners and fans of this publishing company, is now bigger than the original publishing company, and it has extended way beyond what the publishing company could do. This is one of several interviews that I have done with people who are building DAOs. And I'm doing it just to explore this new space, just like I did in the early days of startups when there was this idea that, you know what, a startup could actually go up against a big company, and it seemed ridiculous, and people said, your product, not a, I mean, your feature, not a company, and these features, like Dropbox, like others, ended up being bigger than the companies that people thought they should just be a feature of. That's what it's about. I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm just here to tell you, if you're interested, listen to these stories and I make them as interesting as the, the stories here on this podcast and I just realized I should create a, a better URL and so I'm going to create it right now and then we'll build it before uh, this podcast episode launch. It's going to be on joinorigami.com slash podcast. Joinorigami.com slash podcast. Okay. The first thing worked for you. Again, it was just you doing Facebook and getting the word out. At what point did you say, you know, it's time to go build a second one? Oh, actually, no, I'm sorry. Before we get to the second one, here's the thing that that I heard helped you grow. Somebody reached out to you and said that there is a conference or some big event, and can you host them? Am I right? And you yes. said yes. Tell me I, about what was this event? I, yeah, so that was the leap, actually, for us between Sage Safaris and Under Canvas. Um, and Under Canvas would never have happened without this big, amazing event. And we got a phone call and, you know, I often say that, you know, entrepreneurship is a lot of grit, a lot of skill and a bit of luck. And we levered our our lucky moment in that we got a phone call from folks who saw our amazing tents and said, we want your tents and we want your tents at a music festival in New York. Can you bring 150 tents? Now, we had four tents. Um, and this was our moment to say, no, no, we, we don't have 150 tents or to say, yes, I'll figure that out and I'll bring 150 tents. And that was what we did. And we said yes to something that did not yet exist and figured out how to get that done to, to win a big order, um, to put up tents for a music festival in upstate New York in the Hamptons in New York. How did you do this? These aren't inexpensive tents. I'll be honest with you, Sarah. I looked up what it would cost to get something that's on the order of what you've done. The cheapest I could find is $5,000. It doesn't look nearly as beautiful as yours. So to get 150 of them, it's not inexpensive and it's also not easy. How did you do it? No. No. So I had to convince all our suppliers that they could wait to get paid until until we got paid. Okay. So it was, we were totally on a knife edge. And if we had not got paid uh there we we would have been in a really tricky situation for sure so it was definitely risky um and definitely one of those moments that you're you know you're banking on making sure that someone comes through for you because otherwise you're even more in a hole than before you started (laughs) um but we never made any money off that event but but what happened with that event was you know the the folks who hired us effectively paid the cost for us to acquire a lot of tents. Oh, so, so they covered up- the cost of the tents. Mm-hmm. You, you didn't have to, I, I thought you were even losing money on that. They paid for the cost of the tents. We may have lost tents. a little bit of money, but, but you know, I mean, we basically, we basically kind of broke even in a roundabout kind of way. And was and, this on um, their property, the property that they had for their event? It was. Okay, so yes. now what yes. you got out of it was, a vision for how tents. you can go bigger and 150 yeah. tents. 
okay. ended up with 150 tents, yes, which, which then could have connected us with the possibility of A, doing something bigger, and B, then um, thinking about where are we going to put 150 tents? <laughs> okay. Um, and what might we do with, with more tents? Um, and that was when, that was the bridge for us between Sage Safaris and Under Canvas and creating tented hotels around national parks. Okay, so then you had to start looking around for another property. My understanding was at that point, did you have one child? I had two. By the time we um, opened Yellowstone Under Canvas, uh, we had two children who were three and um, six months old. And so you were driving around looking for locations. When I imagined something like this, I was in San Francisco saying, you know what? San Francisco is incredibly expensive. A really tiny house mm -hmm. cost $2 million right on our block. And then if you go down an hour, which is not a bad drive on the weekend, you can buy for $400,000 a good three to four acres, which is a good amount of property in the Bay Area. I said, okay, that's going to be fairly easy. I just go buy it and then I put up tents. Turns out there are a lot of restrictions. Turns out oh, it's not as easy to buy. Yeah, right? And so I for mean, you... Always thinks it's super easy to throw yes. tents up and put them in a field. <laughs> I, I thought that too. So tell me about yes. what some of the challenges were of finding the location. Yeah, I mean, you've got all sorts of regulations from zoning to planning to building restrictions to um, covenants on land to, um, you know, access, road issues, sewer issues, water issues. I mean, they're endless. Um, there, there are a whole lot of stars that have to align for a site to be able to be developed into an under canvas, that's for sure. And so... When you did this, how long did it take you to find the right spot? Um, we started at the, it was pretty crazy actually, because at the end of that first year, which pretty much almost killed us, um, we did realize and did start to think, I think we could do more of this. And I remember talking about it to a member of staff at the time, and he thought I was crazy. <laughs> he said, because, you know, we were not the polished professional organization that under canvases today. And it was a whole lot more rough around the edges. Um, and I remember saying to him, yeah, we'll we'll figure that out and we'll open more. And he thought we were definitely biting off more than we could chew. And we definitely were biting off more mm -hmm. than we could chew. Um, but we just had this belief and this vision that under canvas could become um, could become what's become today. Um, and there could be um, under canvas locations all across the country. Can you give me just a sense of what, like, a, I think some of the places you leased were, were 200 acres, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe even the first place that you got was 200. What does something like that cost? I, I honestly don't remember what we've, we've, we've paid for land. I mean, have to remember it's a decade ago. Most of it was over a decade ago. Um, but, um, obviously some land, depending on where it is more expensive and some land, um, relatively inexpensive. And but this was all on your credit cards. You got over a hundred thousand dollars in um, credit card debt, right? In the first year of, of, of Yellowstone under canvas. Yes. That's how we managed to open under canvas in Yellowstone with credit cards. Yes. Wow. No sleepless nights over it because by then you figured out the model. What? It was, you did? Oh, constantly sleepless nights for almost a decade. <laughs> wow, really? Yes. 
How do you tolerate the sleepless nights? I always think, okay, there's going to be a minute where my sleepless nights will be over. And truthfully, they come in minutes, sometimes months. And then you're right back because there's something, even something as small as I said to someone I was going to deliver this and I can't. And now I, I, I have to figure it out in the middle of the night, even though I can't figure it out in the middle of the night. What do you do to cope? Um, great question. I don't know that I cope brilliantly well. I will say that okay. out loud. What I, what I will say though, is because people often, and even now having sold the company, um, folks will definitely say to me, why, why would you not take the easy route now? Why would you not go sip, sip pina coladas and sit on a beach and, you know, enjoy the rest of your life? Um, and the easy answer to that question is why, you know, in terms of why take on more risk, why keep making big bets, um, is really a sense of, um, I can only describe it as a sense of fulfillment by pushing yourself to do something that you believe you can do. And as okay. I said at the beginning of the interview, when you've got a dream or a passion inside of you, there is nothing that satisfies you like trying to make that happen. And, and so that's why we continue to make big bets and take risks um, because we still have dreams and ambitions and desires of, of things we'd love to see make happen. So um, that's what drives that, I think. Was the model, once you figured it out, was it now we just repeat, get more locations, put them up on the website, talk more about how we've done it, make sure that people see it? Was it just, it just once you figured out the model, was it just repeating and repeating it for the next, say, five years? Not quite. Um, Under Canvas has probably been through four or five iterations now in terms of improving the product, improving the service, improving the food, um, really just honing the model, um, making it a better business business model, operating it, optimizing it, um, taking better care of our staff. You know, there are so many levels um, of, of change and improvement. And, you know, even if you ask the staff at Under Canvas who've been maybe with the company for five years or more, they will say an enormous amount of change has happened over a five-year period. So building, I mean, building companies, big companies is really about building big teams. It's about building systems and processes. It's about um, professionalizing. And, you know, under <laughs> startups are like babies and companies that become big are like grown-ups and you have that whole journey in between from being a baby to being a toddler to being an you know elementary student and onwards and so the whole process of of growing a company is really growing up in lots and lots of ways and so the if we look at one of the typical locations, and I, I've got a screenshot here of all the locations that exist today. You've got uh, Bryce Canyon, Acadia, Lake Powell, Mount Rushmore, Moab, etc. Uh, how many are there? Eight. If we take one that's kind of a typical one, how many tents are on there? And then who makes food? What are the resources that are available? Um, so an average size camp might have 60 to 70 Tents, um, 60 to it. 70. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, wow. 
And some of the larger camps have more and some of the smaller camps have less, but probably 60 to 70 is probably average. Um, they have full hotel spectrum of staffing. So we have, you know, chefs, F&B managers, um, general managers, housekeeping, night auditors, experience guides, the whole lot. So there's a huge team um, behind the scenes making everyday magical under canvas. Because the guides are taking people through the property or or yeah, through the they, national they parks, are, the property. They're supporting you on property. They're helping make plans and adventure plans for off property um, and just being your travel, your concierge for whilst you're on property. Okay. And what are some of the activities on property? Um, they they vary um, from location to location. Um, Yellowstone's got some fly fishing because we're on an amazing, beautiful river. Um, we've obviously got um, guided tours that we take people on into the parks. We've got s'mores. We've got badminton. We've got outdoor games. we got, I mean, all sorts of stuff. Horseback the riding. The one thing I mean, that... The one thing I remember that you didn't have when I wanted to get together with a friend of mine for a meeting there was no internet. And it was no intentional, internet. right? Yes. <laughs> Tell me about that. Why no internet? Because the whole premise of going to stay at Under Canvas is that you are there to disconnect from the world and reconnect with nature and the people that you are traveling with. So it's a very intentional decision um, and has always been a controversial business decision because, you know, internet is almost seen as like this human right, you know, that wherever we are, we're supposed to have internet, access to the internet. But right. one of the things I think is really powerful about being in the outdoors is this, the ability of the outdoors to change us and to transform us. And so if we disconnect from our normal regular life and connect with nature and connect with space and connect with um, people. I remember in the early days of Under Canvas, people emailing me and saying things like, we played board games with our kids in the tent at night and we talked more to our kids in the last four days than we did like in the last year because we were all not plugged into our, our technology. So that for me is really powerful and it's really, really healthy um, to spend time disconnected on purpose. And this was intentional. I know today with Starlink, you can put internet in. Back then it was harder. And you still, you, were you able to do it and you chose not to? Yeah. I mean, our, our camps all have internet because we have to run POS systems and, you know, be able to charge credit cards and, you know, take reservations. So um, the staff have to have internet for the business to function. So, yeah, it's definitely possible. Um, we just never thought it was optimal. Uh, and not optimal for the guest experience with what we were trying to create. Wow. Okay. Can you give me the economics of like a location? Just generic. I'm not looking to to do your taxes or anything, but what would a location that could hold 60 tents cost to, I guess, to lease and then eventually to own? And then what does it cost to run one of these locations? If I told you that, I would have to kill you. Is it really, it's proprietary information? Yes. <laughs> it is. And it's, I guess what I'm trying to understand is, are the economics better than motels? Like when you say 60 different better. spots, I they are. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't cost uh, 
It doesn't cost what it would cost to build a motel as to build an under canvas, for sure. The economics are good. They're really good. The economics are good. Why did you decide? At first, what you did was you bootstrapped it. You took on debt and you Mm -hmm. built the thing up. Eventually, you sold a piece of it to, what is it, to SBJ, um, Mm -hmm. which I don't know, but I see them now. SBJ Partners. They seem like it's like you were in the perfect, uh, the sweet spot for them to, to make an investment. Why did you sell a piece of your business to them? Was it to get a little bit of, you know, quiet security? Uh, no, I didn't sell a piece of the business to them. They invested so that we could continue to grow. Oh. Um, and so they were an investor in, in the business, still are an investor in the business, um, and just put capital into the to the company to grow. And we later sold to a private at large, much larger private equity company um, who bought a more majority share of the company. I see. So it was written up as sold a minority stake to a San Francisco investment firm for $17 million. No, it was $17 million to help grow the business. They were basically making an investment in the future of the business. That's right. Okay. All right. I'm curious about why you sold, but first I should say to everyone listening, if you need to hire developers, you should know you can get great developers at fantastic prices from Lemon and Lemon. If you go to lemon.io slash Mixergy, you'll get an even lower price. Um, go check him out. I love them. I even just drove around with the founder through Austin as the two of us were talking about his business. I think it's a phenomenal business and you should at least consider them by going to join, wait, going to uh, lemon.io slash Mixergy, lemon.io slash Mixergy. Yeah, so why did you eventually sell? Um, we went out to raise more capital for the business um, to help scale and grow the company. And um we ended up getting an offer that we could not turn down. So um, had no intention of selling under canvas. Um, but that's typically what happens when you when you build a great business, um, people will want to buy it. Um, and people often ask me about, you know, how did you how did you prepare for an exit? And I was like, I didn't prepare for an exit. I just built a great company. So the way <laughs> you prepare for an exit, build a great company and people will want to buy it. And so what happened after you sold to your life? Did things change? Did you get to finally take a breath? Did you sleep better at night? Um, <laughs> well, the, the day um, we signed the paperwork to um, sell the majority of Under Canvas, I was it, it was a long, drawn-out, intense negotiation and process, and I was ready to go pop the champagne that night. Um, and I remember it was a few, few days before Christmas, so we were all exhausted. You know, Christmas was coming, ready for a big holiday and a big celebration. Um, and both my kids had norovirus and were, and were vomiting their socks off. Uh, and then the rest of us then spent the next two weeks vomiting our socks off. <laughs> so uh, we certainly, you know, the, the universe sometimes needs to keep your feet grounded with crazy moments are often, especially if you're a parent, often also coupled with challenging, challenging parenting moments at the same time. And then did you eventually get to go and celebrate somehow, pop the champagne, do something? What did you do? We definitely have done plenty to celebrate over the years. Yes, absolutely. Without a doubt. What's one thing that you got to do for yourself? I, I, is it buy a boat? No. What is it? No. I started a venture capital fund. <laughs> so That was it. Um, no fun celebration first and then jump oh, back into well, the business? Thing, the thing that I love to do more than anything else is travel. Um, and so um, uh, I 
I love to travel, so we'll always spend time um, visiting and experiencing and being in crazy wild places. And that's the thing that I always love to do. Um, but I worked for a year post closing that transaction with Under Canvas. I stayed on for a year as CEO. So I, I went back to work right after the transaction happened. Wow. Okay. And then you said that you started a fund. Why start a yes. fund? I, I would have thought you'd go and be a do-gooder somewhere considering your background. Um, so for me, the fund is being a do-gooder in the sense that um, women are women founders are drastically underfunded around the world. Um, the stats are less than 2% of all venture capital money uh, goes to female founders. And my own journey as a female founder really just discovered it's really hard trying to raise capital. Um, and I really, I just knew that if I, um, I needed to get in the ring, if more women were going to get funded. And one of the things that I could do was share with others my own experiences and my journey of building a company um, and that I potentially could mentor and help others go on the journey that I've been on. And I happen to think that the companies that we build in the world and particularly emerging markets, which is why we're in Africa, focused on Africa, um, SMEs are the backbone of any economy and they are what hold a country together. They create jobs, they create taxes that make the world go round. Um, and actually that if we can contribute to getting more people into building businesses, you can affect an economy and you can change the GDP of a nation. Um, and we'd love to see more women um, raised up um, in big positions of power and responsibility to impact their communities, cities and nations. So is, we have a really Is this just about mission. helping women or is it also that there's a, like, did you notice also that there was an underserved group of people. If you could fund them, you could make outsized returns because everyone else absolutely. is not. It is. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can do both. I think we can make make outsized returns and I think we can drive change um, and impact women at the same time. And I think that's a magic formula right there. And that honestly was the, the formula for Under Canvas too, is like, can you do good? Can you bring something good to the world and drive change? And, you know, for un us at Under Canvas, you know, we figured out a way to develop a hotel um, using a tenth of the resources and, and water and, you know, waste and all those things and build sustainably and make a minimal impact on the earth. Um, and so I think business is this amazing, powerful tool. You can do great things that move the world forward and you can generate um, generate income and generate wealth at the same time. And, and you know, when you do those two things, we can keep the world moving forward um, and hopefully moving forward in a better, better direction. Can you tell me about one of the women that you've invested in so far? Yeah, um, we've made 14 investments over the last three years. Um, and bearing in mind, the last three years included a big world pandemic. <laughs> right. So we, we, uh, we didn't stop during the pandemic and realized that businesses are going to need capital now even more than before. Um, we've got some amazing women solving some really big problems. So um, I have one woman in Zambia who is attempting to bank the unbanked by creating a banking platform that serves some of the lowest income people in the world, creating access to credit, financial services, credit ratings, um, and trying to help them have capital to grow their own wealth by um, investing in their small businesses. Um, she's amazing. I have another woman in Eswatini, tiny little country just right by South Africa, 
who is um, created an amazing branded chili sauce that she exports around the world, um, produced by uh, rural local women, um, incredible ethical fair trade product uh, that she's built a great brand from um, and is creating an export product. So, um, I mean, those are just two. I would, we have, I have a dozen more. I went through the form on your site to see if I was eligible. Frankly, I wanted to see, is the form really smart or is this just a, I don't know, just a, a lead capture thing. I wasn't eligible. And then it said, because I'm in the US, I'm a male and I wasn't asking, I was asking for only a hundred dollars anyway, for all those things that I filled in. But then at the end of it, it took me to Pranaray. It said, okay, you're not, mm-hmm. el- you're not eligible, but go to pranaray.com. Is that associated with you somehow? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Pranary is our education arm. So Pranary is a for-profit platform um, that help, is a practical entrepreneurship school for, um, for early stage entrepreneurs. So it's, it's everything from how do I launch to how do I build a valuable company to how do I scale and how do I become investor ready. And so we've, we've put over, over 10,000 people through um, education um, learning modules over the last three years, which has been really exciting because part of the trouble with raising capital is understanding what it takes to raise capital and the kind of businesses that do get funded. And if you don't know those rules, you can't play that game. And so one of the important things for us with helping women um, be fundable is to teach women actually what it takes to get funded. And that's the that's the business of Pranary. What happened when you were, I want to close out with the early part of your career. What happened when you decided that you were going to do good in the world by doing nonprofit work, by, mm-hmm. by doing relief and development work? Why didn't that work and why did it burn you out? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly have always been a, um, a save, I call it a save the world person. And I think I can contribute in making the world better. And for the longest time, I thought the only people who did good in the world were um, people who worked for charities and nonprofits. And they, you know, people who scooped up um, those who were most vulnerable in our society. Um, And it was a serious shock to me, um, A, when I got burned out and disillusioned. um, And the thought then occurred to me that the vehicle of a nonprofit is not very sustainable it's not really designed for solving big problems. It's really designed for bandaging and supporting. They they play supporting roles, right? They're not designed for problem solving. And I really felt a strong sense of, I think there's got to be a better vehicle. So it was a bit of a shock when I discovered the the potential vehicle could be business because business to me at that time was like the dark side. I mean, it was evil, <sighs> this idea of making money. I mean, it's like, you know, the capitalists and they're horrific. Um, so, <laughs> so it was quite a shift, quite a mental shift for me. Um, but just realizing business really is this, um, is this powerful vehicle that, that is about innovating and problem solving. I mean, that's the whole essence of a business, right? A business solves a particular problem and people pay money to solve, to have that problem solved for them. Um, and it's therefore sustainable, um, because you create profit ideally. And so, um, that was the shift. I ended up writing a master's thesis on that whole idea. Could business be used for good in the world? And it was before the time of impact investing and B Corps and 
all, all this, you know, social entrepreneurship. Uh, it was 20 years ago. Um, and the reality is I, I still think today, yes, it can. And yes, it should. And I still think it's maybe the best vehicle that we've got. My wife went through a similar situation. She wanted to do good in the world. And so she volunteered. And when she volunteered in the school in Micronesia, they didn't have things like pencils. So well, how mm. can we do good if the basics aren't even here? We don't have the fundamentals. So, yeah. Right. So then she she went down a similar path to yours where she realized, well, there's a connection between business and doing good. And anyway, today she she runs... Um, uh, pager duties for good division. She is, what is the official title? VP of global social impact, I think. And similar situation, businesses have money, they have a need to do this, they have a desire to do it, and they grow their businesses by doing good in the world. Yeah, well, fantastic. All right. Okay. You are at Enigma Ventures. Anyone like me should just go through the application process to see what happens when you get rejected because you're going to get rejected. But if you're a female <laughs> entrepreneur in Africa, want to participate, go check them out at Enigma Ventures. And I'm grateful to the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you're curious about DAOs like I am, listen to my podcast similar to this, all about DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations at joinorigami.com slash podcast. And when you're hiring developers, go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. Sarah, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Bye. Bye, everyone.